I invite you to turn in your Bibles or swipe in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 as we continue our exposition of this Old Testament book. We're going to be looking at Daniel 9 verses 1 through 19 this morning. And I thought we would just save one of the most difficult uh, to understand and interpret passages for the latter half of Daniel for Mother's Day next week. For all you mothers as a gift, we're going to look at Daniel 9, 20 through 27 next week together. And so we'll be praying uh, as we anticipate that day. But we uh, certainly want to give our time and attention to Daniel 9, uh, verses 1 through 19 this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we go to this word. Lord, would you indeed open our eyes and our ears to hear and to receive the food of your holy word. Would you nourish our souls? Would you convict us of sin? Would you make us more like Christ? All for your glory. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon is often known as one of the greatest preachers that's ever lived. He preached in England from about the mid to late 1800s. And today there are over 63 volumes, published volumes of his sermons that you can read today. People would come from all over the world to hear him. On one such occasion, the famous American evangelist D.L. Moody traveled to England and went to hear Spurgeon while he was there, actually became good friends. And upon Moody's return to America, someone once asked him, did you hear Spurgeon preach? To which Moody replied, yes, But better still, I heard him pray. You know, as I thought about that great historical response to Spurgeon's preaching, I thought, well, we could say something similar about Daniel, couldn't we? Daniel is is known oftentimes for his courageous faith in the lion's den. We know about his ability to interpret dreams. And perhaps now that we're in the latter book, latter chapters of Daniel, we know all about his visions. But better still, one of the gifts that God has given us in this book is that we get to come alongside of Daniel as he prays. And probably one of the the things that we see here in Daniel chapter nine is one of the most detailed, beautiful prayers that we will see in the scripture. In fact, um, we see many different prayers in the Bible. Many, many things, many times God's people are praying and even Jesus praying and, and we see the prayers, we learn from these prayers. But here in Daniel chapter nine, I think that there is much to be gained as we come alongside of Daniel as he prays. So as we do that, let's open Daniel nine and let's read Daniel nine verses one through 19. And if you're able, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules." We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel 
has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers and ruled us, who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been one, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written, the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins, for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You may be seated. As we hear this prayer and as we consider all that it expresses, we're drawn to the fact that as Daniel prays, he does so based upon certain promises. And as we think about this prayer and as we think about all that Daniel does, it is, it is the promises of God that draw us in to pray with anticipation and hope. That's what we find here in this text. It is the God's promises that draws Daniel in to pray in anticipation of the deliverance and hope that he and all of Israel has been promised. And so, too, we consider our present state our present condition, in light of the hope that we have and anticipation of our future, we too pray. I think what we find here in this text is Daniel and his prayer modeling for us several truths that are helpful not only to guide our own prayers, but to push us to cling to, by faith, the very same promises that Daniel and the people of God held to in their day. So I want us to consider from Daniel chapter nine, four truths that guide our prayers and are the foundation even for our hope of future deliverance. As we walk through this prayer, we're gonna see these four things. Let's, let's walk through it together. First of all, as we think about this prayer, this is a prayer that is informed by scripture. Daniel's prayer is a prayer informed by God's word. Look at this, in verses one through three, we're given the historical context. Daniel is so helpful at helping us know when these things are happening, isn't he? And so now in Daniel chapter nine, we know that it's the first year of Darius the Mede's reign. He's the Chaldean king that followed Belshazzar. If you go back to chapter five, verse 30, at the big party that, that the Babylonian king was throwing, we know that he's overthrown, he's killed, and Darius comes in and takes reign. Now we, we, we find this regime change. So Going back as far as chronology goes, this chapter nine is following chapter five. We've kind of had an interruption there as we've gone back to some visions that Daniel had had. But at some point during Daniel or Darius's first year in his reign, we find Daniel is reading the Bible. At least he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, isn't he? It's what we're told here in this first year. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to the Jeremiah the prophet. Notice, by the way, that Daniel is equating Jeremiah the prophet's writings as being inspired scripture, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. It's very helpful for us because even here, we see the biblical writers acknowledging one another in various chapters like this in various places, 
This is being inspired scripture. And as Daniel reads Jeremiah, he likely comes to Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, whether or not he had chapters by this time, uh, we don't know, but we know it's in, in, in our Bibles today, it's chapter 25, very helpful in helping us navigate through larger books especially. But likely it's in Jeremiah 25 that he's reading, beginning in verse eight. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet wrote. He writes, therefore, he's writing this to the people of God, warning them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and, ever, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of, the, of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So as Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah, he likely reads this text and, 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 and thinks to himself, 70 years are getting close. Remember, Daniel started away as a, as a teenager. Now he's, he's advancing in years, likely in his late 60s to, to pushing 70 or, or later even. And then he, he, he probably gets to, to Jeremiah chapter 29 and, and verse 10. And reads for, and this actually is a letter that the prophet Jeremiah actually wrote and sent to the exiles in Babylon after they had been taken from the land. So this is, a, uh, 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 this is actual words that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles and he's reminding them of, of what was prophesied earlier. In verse 10, Jeremiah writes, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Daniel's reading this and he's like, the time's drawing near. The time's getting close for these 70 years to be complete. What is God going to do? What is God going to do? And, and he's promised to take us back to the land. And so what does he do? He prays. Notice that it is the very promises of God that drive Daniel to seek the face of God. He reads Jeremiah, he understands that these prophecies have come true and, and now are about to come true again and they're returned to the land. And what does he do? He prays. As this speaks volumes to us as the people of God, even though we may be far removed from Daniel's time. What it teaches us is that our prayers ought to be fueled by the hope that we have in the very promises that God has given us. Friends, we may not be in the same Babylonian captivity as Daniel was, but we are exiles in a strange land waiting on our future deliverance to the new heavens and the new earth. We can see how Israel's captivity and return to the promised land, historical event that literally took place and was fulfilled also foreshadows our future deliverance from captivity as being exiles and, and sojourners in this world to an ultimate fulfillment when we will be in God's land for all of eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. So we can see here in light of all of this that the key point that we are instructed in, in this prayer, even in the beginning of this prayer, is that Daniel was prompted by God's word that comes through the prophet Jeremiah. It's a prayer that's informed, compelled, if you will, motivated, generated by scripture. It just reminds us, friends, that, that, that God's word is a vital piece to our prayer life, and yet it's often the missing element to our prayer life. The Bible, 
we could say, is to prayer what rain and sunlight is to grass. Without rain, without the right amount of sunlight and rain, a lawn will, will grow brown and die out. But the right amount of rain, the right amount of sunlight, all of these things coming together consistently, it produces life. So too the promises of God to our prayers. When we are seeking to depend upon these promises and read these promises, to read the very inspired words of God, friends, these are the very things that will give life to you as you pray. One of the best things that you can do to help a struggling prayer life is open your Bible. It's one of the best things you can do. I know that I can speak from experience and I can speak on behalf of us all. This is where I can, I can be confident on this statement. All of us struggle at times in praying, don't we? One of the best things that you can do when you're struggling in your prayer life is open the Bible. It's in the Bible where we hear God speaking to us, not in some mystical subjective voice that we interpret on our own. He speaks to us directly through the scripture and we speak back to him in prayer. So why would we not, if we're praying to God, if we're speaking to God, why would we not want to first hear from him? One of the best things you can do as you pray is open your Bible. I, I recommend a book just... Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. It's a little, little book on very practical helps on how to read the Bible and see that as, as helping you in your prayer. How to pray scripture and, and, and personalize the very, God, uh, the very words of God as it will empower and help you as you pray. Did I notice something too about Daniel's response as he prays? Daniel is praying in response to God's sovereign activity. Sometimes people will push back concerning God's absolute sovereignty in all things, and they will say things like, well, if God is sovereign over everything in life, then why should we even pray? Well, we know that one of the themes throughout this entire book is the fact that God is sovereign in all things. The fact that God sovereignly has even brought them, sovereignly used Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to judge and discipline his own people in exile now, and he's promised to sovereignly take them back into their land. But notice it's the very sovereignty of God that propels Daniel to pray. It doesn't keep him from praying. Daniel demonstrates that it's because God is sovereign that he prays. He didn't pray because he thought somehow that if he didn't, God's plan would not play out. But rather it was God's plan and promise and ability to fulfill his promises and plans that actually pushes Daniel to pray. Many times, even when we pray, we, we, we struggle knowing what to pray about. And our prayers will often become repetitive and routine. And frankly, if you're honest at times, you would perhaps even say that praying is boring. But friend, when you see all that God has revealed in his word, all that God has promised and we read of all that he has already done, what he continues to do and what he will one day do. Friend, there is much to pray about. There is much to consider. When you think of all that God has done in light of the promises that he's given us, just take, a two, take two of them, for example. Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise. God has begun a work in you and he has promised to carry that work through till the end. What a great promise to cling to in prayer when we are struggling. Lord, I, I'm going through the significant trial. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling as a Christian, but I know, I know that you have promised to complete what you started in me. So help me by your grace. Work in me the, the increased faith I need to trust you in this matter. Help me to know that the end is already promised and will be fulfilled. Help me to cling to that as hope in the present. Or we could go to Romans eight twenty eight, where 
where Paul, again, writing to the church at Rome, he says that, that God has promised to work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his pur- uh, purposes. God has promised to do, work all things. So as you're struggling or whether you're rejoicing, Lord, would you use this moment in my life to work good in me, make me more like Christ, empower me, help me to have a deeper hatred for sin as you conform me to the image of Christ based upon the promise that you've given me, that you're working all things for my good. I don't see good in this, Lord. Help me to see good in it. Help me to trust you. Again, you begin to see how the promises of God begin to fill out your prayers and you're clinging to him. And that's really what prayer is, isn't it? It's clinging to God and trusting him, depending upon him, expressing your complete and utter dependence upon him. Prayer is informed by scripture. Oftentimes we tell our children, don't we? Bow your heads and close your eyes. But friend, I would suggest that perhaps an even better thing that we could do in prayer is actually bow our heads and open our eyes to the very promises of God revealed in his word. Prayer informed by scripture, we see that here in Daniel, but a second observation that we see is it's a prayer grounded by covenant. Daniel begins in verse three, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer, please for mercy fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As Daniel begins this prayer, we notice that in verse four, he highlights that this is a prayer of confession. And really the the, the, the vast majority of this prayer is indeed a, a confession, isn't it? It's a confession of sin, not just his sin, but the corporate sin of Israel as a whole. In fact, in some ways, this prayer follows the acts pattern. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration, oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. Then confession, we have sinned and there's implied thanksgiving in, in, in here, as, especially as you get later. And then supplication, he's praying for God's mercy. So you even see Daniel modeling that, that outline of a, of a prayer. Daniel's movement, though, into confession is not just some random moment he has. He doesn't read Jeremiah and say, oh, I should, uh, let me just pray about something. Uh, I'll confess sin. No, it's not, it's not random at all. It's, it's prompted by God's word, and in particular, a promise that God had made to his people. And why had God made this promise to his people? Because he had made covenant with these people. He made a covenant with with these people. So he proceeds through this prayer with an awareness of God's covenant relationship with Israel, his people. His covenant was the basis of his commitment to God's people, Israel. Now, when we think about a covenant, a covenant is, is simply a binding promise or pledge when one party commits to bless or serve another party in a specific way. It's one way we could define covenant. It's a binding promise, a binding pledge when one party commits to bless or serve another party in a specific way. In Genesis 17, when God makes covenant with his people there in Genesis, he kind of summarizes the, the, the reality of this covenant by saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's kind of the summary statement of his covenant that he makes to Abraham and then later fulfills with the descendants of Abraham. Covenant, it's different from a contract. A contract is an agreement between two parties based on services provided. You do this and we'll do this. Thank your Verizon bill or you AT&T people or you three sprint people, whoever you are. It's a contract. You, you agree to pay a certain amount and receive certain services in return, some better than others. Or your mortgage, or your rent, or on and on. There's, we live in a world of contracts, don't we? Some of you are employed on behalf of the government, government of the United States to engage in contracts, right? You deal with contracts every day. Me even mentioning it makes you shiver right now just to even think about it. 
But when it comes to how God relates to his chosen people, you need to leave your idea of contract in your cubicle or at the Verizon store. Because that is not how God relates to his people. He does so by means of covenant, not contract. This is, this is why marriages often fall so easily. They're based on contract, not covenant. When the services of a husband and wife that expects are no longer being provided or produced, they just move on like they would cell phone provider. Praise God that his relationship to his people is a covenant relationship, not a contractual relationship. He has made an unconditional binding commitment to establish and keep a people for himself. Now, when you think about this relationship, there are certainly contractual aspects to this relationship. He refers to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, where there are these blessing and cursing uh, promises given. You obey, you'll be blessed. You disobey, you'll be cursed. And what he's saying here is that we've, we've, we've been on the receiving end of your curses, Lord, because we didn't obey. So in, in some aspect, there's this contractual kind of idea, but it's under the umbrella of covenants. After all, they're in Babylon due to their idolatry and disobedience. They're receiving what they deserve by the hand of God because they're in a covenant with him. And, and he told them, if you disobey, you will be cursed. But listen, even though they're in Babylon suffering the discipline for their own sin, God never abandons them. He never abandons them. He, he's, he basing his, he's, he's giving them the discipline they deserve. He told Jeremiah, Jeremiah told them this is what was coming. They, they didn't repent, they didn't, they didn't turn. And so he delivers them over to Babylon. But he tells even Jeremiah, as Jeremiah writes to them, 70 years over, I'm, I'm bringing them back home. I'm bringing them back home because I've made a covenant with them. Did, did you hear what Jeremiah said, wasn't it? In Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. And that promise, friends, is based upon the covenant relationship, this binding pledge that he has for his people from beginning to end. It's a covenant relationship. In Jeremiah, if you go back to Jeremiah, I know we're in Daniel, but Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 31, even looked forward to the day when God would establish a new covenant with his people. And he's done this in Christ. We know that through Christ, this covenant, this binding commitment to save and keep a people for himself has been sealed and secured through the finished work of Jesus once and for all. And that's good news, friends, for, for us. Even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's good news for you. Because it means that if you would simply turn from your sin and trust in the very promise that God has given, that if you will turn from your sin and by faith embrace Jesus Christ, all that he's done for sinners, if you'll trust in him and believe in him, you'll be pardoned, you'll be forgiven of your sins, past, present, future, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the spirit of God once and for all. That is the hope that you have because of the new covenant. He's made this binding commitment to save and keep a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and he signed and sealed that covenant in blood. So this prayer is a prayer that's Grounded by covenant. But it's a prayer, as we've stated already, number three, that's expressed through confession. Majority of what Daniel prays is a prayer of confession. It begins in adoration, but quickly moves to confession. And friends, that, that's what adoration does. Even in the flow of our service, we've said this before, there's, there's somewhat of a liturgy here in our flow of our service. We begin with adoration, praising God, and then we're quickly, as we are confronted with the reality of who God is in praising him, we're quickly brought to remembrance our own sin. And that's why we have times of confession even in our service here. So when you seek to praise God and realize how great and holy and awesome he is, you're, you're quickly reminded just how low and sinful you are and how much in need of him you truly are. That's what happens here. I want you to notice several things about the nature of confession through this prayer of confession, this inspired prayer of confession. First of all, confession is specific. 
Now in verse five, he summarizes his prayer. And this is where most of us probably would stop. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. That's true. So Daniel kind of summarizes it right there. God, you are great, but, but we're not. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and we've rebelled. But then notice what he does. He begins to unpack that, doesn't he? He gets very specific with his confession, both in how they had sinned and against whom they had sinned. Notice, just walking through the the, the text here of this prayer, verse five, we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. Verse six, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets. Jeremiah, for example. Verse seven, to you belongs righteousness, but to us open shame because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse eight, to us belongs open shame because we've sinned against you. We've rebelled, verse nine. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. And as a result, he reminds them in verse 11 that the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses have been poured out upon us. You've kept your word, Lord. We sinned and we've we're reaping the benefits or the consequences, I should say, of that, of that rebellion. But the point is, is that he's very specific. He, he's, he's saying we have disobeyed your laws and certainly he has several specific laws in mind, even though it's, it's more summarized here. And he's specifically saying, we've not listened to your prophets. There were many prophets that were sent to Israel, to Judah. We didn't listen. Treachery we've committed against you. They were idolaters. On and on. Daniel just, he doesn't just say, we've done wrong, Lord, forgive us. He gets very specific in his confession. Nor does he ignore or simply push aside their sin. I want you to notice something here, friends. It's been almost 70 years and Daniel is going back and confessing specifically the sin that had brought them to this place. 70 years. I mean, how easy would it have been to say, well, that was a long time ago. I think we've learned our lesson. I mean, it's one thing to confess your sin and move on. You don't want to dwell upon it. But I mean, he's confessing 70-year-old sin here. He goes back and he unpacks and lays before the Lord the sins that Israel had been guilty of, and he lays them before the Lord. Friends, let that teach us something about the nature of confession. God is concerned about the specifics of your sin, and no matter how long it's been, he desires you to be specific in this confession. Confession is specific. Number two, confession is taking responsibility. Daniel goes back and forth here, if you notice, between pronouns. He'll talk about we or they and us. And and the point is, is that Daniel's, while he's referring to Israel as a nation, and so sometimes he'll say they, he includes himself oftentimes by using the pronouns we or us. So he's not afraid to to, uh, include himself or to associate himself with the rebellion of, of the nation. And he recognizes the fairness of God's judgment. How often do we do that? God, not only have I sinned in these specific ways, no matter how long it's been, and not only am I guilty, even if I'm praying on behalf of a group, but you were right. You, God, are right to discipline me. You were right to bring us to exile. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. You were right to do this. His confession is is, is acknowledging the the character of God, the justice and righteousness of God. God is righteous, he is just, and therefore has every right to discipline his people. Friends, I think oftentimes when we confess our sins, we're not only guilty of being very general in our confession, but we often are tempted to rationalize, aren't we? Lord, I have sinned, but. It's, it's kind of like when the kids are disobeying, you know, they come to you. Yes, I did that, but. No, let's stop right there and go back. As soon as you include that, that little word, but, 
changes everything, doesn't it? You're not truly owning your own disobedience. And that's what we'll do. Lord, I know I've failed in this way, but it's just, but it's just been so hard. Or, but this person is so difficult. Or, but if things were different, I wouldn't have done this. And we should never seek to rationalize sin. Sin's not rational to begin with. Don't seek to justify your ungodly behavior. You don't see that at all here in Daniel, do you? He is owning it all up front. Or we have sinned. To us belongs open shame. To you belongs righteousness. There's no excuses given here. And do you ever truly grieve over sin like we see in Daniel here? In your confession of sin, are you specific? And do you recognize the the fact that God is right to judge and discipline sinners? Do you recognize that? And sometimes even when we pray, we, we, we pray and oh, I've, I've failed, but surely God, you, you understand, don't you? And God does not deal with sin that way. God doesn't just sweep sin under the, the rug and say, it's okay. Like when we, when we quote unquote practice forgiveness with each other, and we come to someone and say, you know, I've really wronged you. And that person says, it's okay, you don't worry about it. That's a terrible response, don't ever do that. Don't ever tell someone it was okay for them to sin against you. That is not helpful. If someone says, I have sinned against you, and they have, say, I accept your apology, I forgive you. Don't ever tell them it's okay. But I think that sometimes we think that way and we think that that's how God's going to respond to us. We, uh, God, I've done wrong, as if we're thinking, well, it's okay, I understand. You're in a bad world but I'm making all things new. That's not how God deals with sin. God takes sin so seriously that he was willing to send his own son into the world to bear the righteous judgment and wrath of God against his, against his own son so that sinners could be fully pardoned. If you think that God sweeps sin under the rug, you're wrong. You just need to look to the cross because there Jesus took upon the full weight and wrath and anger of God against sin once and for all as Jesus bore the right penalty for each of us who would believe. And God is, God is the one who is ultimately offended when we sin. And because of that, he must deal with our sin or else he would not be good or he would not be just. Number three, confession is individual and corporate. Notice here, Daniel is confessing the sin of Israel as a whole. There are times when confession must be corporate in nature. Now, certainly there are times every day, for that matter, when we are confessing individual sins to God, and we should do that. It's right that we come to God and, and, and own up our own individual failures, but there are times and appropriate times for us to not only just confess our private sins, but, but, but our sins as a whole. And friend, by the way, we must, must not forget that as Christians, we are connected to a community of believers. And when we do sin individually, it does impact the community as a whole, doesn't it? So there are times when our individual sins will, will often in, impact the, the corporate witness and life of the church so, that, so much so that we're having to confess our corporate failure, our, our, our failure as a community. Again, this is one of the reasons we include a time of confession in our services. It's for you to individually come before the Lord and confess your own sins, but oftentimes we're, we're confessing how we have failed how we have neglected, how we have done wrong, right? Because we have. So confession is individual and corporate. You see beautifully modeled here, the corporate confession of sin. It's a right thing, good thing to do. Then number four, this is a prayer that is shaped, I would say from beginning to end by God's character. From beginning to end by God's character. Even go back to verse four where he's, oh Lord, great and awesome God, the character of God is from the beginning setting the context for this prayer, isn't it? And all the way through, it's the character of God. He continues to go back to, to you, oh Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To you belong righteousness. To the Lord, our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, but we have rebelled. 
And then he gets down to verses 15 through 19 and he begins to conclude his prayer, but it's a prayer that concludes beautifully in reference and relationship to the very character and nature of God. I want you to notice this. After detailing the sin of Israel, Daniel does ask God to forgive them. But notice the reasons why. This is so critical to our own praying. But I want you to notice the reasons he gives for the request to forgive them. He doesn't say, God, please forgive us because these 70 years in exiles, these 70 years in exile have have gone to rehabilitate the people back into righteousness. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, forgive us because we've seen, we seem to have it together now. After all, we did quite well in the fiery furnace. We did pretty good in the lion's den. A few of us, I think we're doing okay. He doesn't say that, does he? Notice none of these reasons are given, but he does appeal to God for forgiveness based upon four reasons. One, he appeals to God's reputation. Look at verse 15. Let me go back to verse 14. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. So he's just acknowledging God was right to do this to us. But verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned and done wickedly. Daniel looks back to the Exodus and reminds God, not that God needs reminding, but he's, he's, he's using this, this, this testimony of God's redemptive activity in Egypt as an example of his powerful deliverance. And surely if God delivered his people out of Egypt, brought them to the promised land, that he would continue on with what he had promised and already demonstrated. It's connected to his covenant. After all, if God was going to leave his people to their own devices and, and, and just deteriorate in, in, in exile in Babylon, then God would not be faithful to his word. If the people of God are just eliminated at this point, God would not be faithful to his word. So he's appealing, if you will, to, to God's reputation. Remember, God, you brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. You've made a name for yourself as at this day. And he even continues to go on and talks about, do this for your own sake. It's as if Daniel is, is going back to Egypt and he's saying, Lord, do it again. You brought us out of this exodus, through this exodus from Egypt into the promised land. Do it again, Lord. Do this new exodus. Take us back from from exile, back to the promised land. Do it again. You've done it before and based upon your promises and so that your name is known, do it again. He appeals to God's reputation. Number two, he appeals to God's righteousness. All of these are somewhat connected. Notice verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. According to your, all your righteous acts, turn away from your wrath. And it was because of God's righteousness that the people of God found themselves in exile. But it would also be because of God's righteousness that they would be delivered from that exile and returned to the promised land. God is righteous, therefore he must adequately punish and discipline sin. But because God is righteous, he is faithful to his word and he will bring his people back. It's a beautiful doctrine, isn't it? The righteousness of God. He is faithful. God's righteousness is demonstrated both in his discipline and his restoration of his people. Because God was ever faithful to his word, then he must surely grant favor to his people, not because of their righteousness, but because of his own righteousness. Sound familiar? Appeals to God's righteousness. Number three, he appeals to God's glory. This could be 
put together with God's reputation to some degree, but it's where his glory. And again, if you see this in verse 17, so he says, according to your righteousness, now therefore, verse 17, now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercies and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. For your own sake. In verse 19, he ends this prayer. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Because your city and your people are called by your name. God, this people that you've disciplined, they have your name on them. They bear your name. Therefore, your reputation and your glory is on the line. It sounds bold, doesn't it? You prayed like this before? God, your name's on the line here. You prayed like that? I think some of us are afraid to pray with that bold awareness. Friend, if it wasn't based in covenant and God's promises, it would be a bit of a stretch, but we can pray with this kind of boldness because God is good and God is faithful to his word and his glory matters. You think that a prayer that God hears from his people seeking the, the, the motivation behind it, seeking God's reputation and God's glory is gonna be a prayer that's not heard. Not at all. Shouldn't that be our chief motive in all that we do anyway? All that we desire? Lord, do this for your name's sake. Lord, build Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, not for our sake, but for your sake, for your honor. Encourage these churches in this community. Build your church through this nation. Advance your church and your kingdom throughout this world. Lord, not for our sake, not so that we can get on the news and say, look at us, so that we can point to your glory, so that the peoples of the world would know that you are glorious and that you are worthy, that you are amazing. Do this for your name, O Lord. And then last, he appeals to God's mercy. Back in verse 18. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Listen, here it is. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Not at all. But because of your great mercy. We have nothing to bring to the table, Lord, except our sin. We have nothing to, to confess that's righteous. We, we, we don't have any good reason for you to do this. So we're asking you to do it based upon your reputation, based upon your glory, based upon your promises, based upon all these things that we've seen before on your righteousness. So Lord, do this because you're merciful. You delight in pardoning the guilty. That's the gospel, isn't it, friends? It's the very gospel that has brought these people into covenant with God and it's the gospel that sustains them in covenant with him. It's the same for us. We have nothing to bring to God for him to pardon us. We don't come to God saying, hey, I, I did all these things. I prayed these prayers. I read all this stuff. I did all these good works. I did, I did all this. Now pardon me. You won't find that in the Bible. You might find that in some other traditions of Christianity. It's not in the Bible. The Bible says we have no righteousness, but God, you are righteous. You are merciful. Do this for your glory and your namesake. What a beautiful rem reminder Friends, there was nothing Israel could do or had done to warrant God's restoration of them. If they would be restored, it would be due to the mercy of God or not at all. Great reminder of our own situation, isn't it? Friends, when we pray, we must remember to cling to God's mercy. And when we pray, we need to pray making the proper appeals to God. Friend, Daniel was, he was in exile looking forward in hope and therefore he prayed. We too are strangers in a foreign land awaiting the arrival to our true homeland. So let us too be faithful in our praying as we await that day. You know, while Daniel teaches us much about prayer, how to pray, 
I think more importantly, he teaches us that we must pray. We must pray. Pastor recently said that prayer is proof that we trust God. Prayerlessness is proof that we trust ourselves. Friends, as we continue on living as sojourners and exiles in this world, let's be quick to lay hold to the promises of God through prayer as we anticipate that coming day when we too will be delivered. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious reminder as we are able through your revealed word to come into the prayer life of your servant, Daniel, to see how he prayed, to see what it was that motivated him, that grounded him, that, that pushed him to pray. Father, may these same things be true in our lives as well. Father, I pray that you would just help us to seek you, to trust you, to cling to you. Father, that our, that our prayers would be faithful prayers, not selfish prayers, not general prayers, but Lord, very specific, clinging to the very promise that you've made us. Father, you know our hearts today and you know, you know where we struggle and you know the things that are true. But it may be that we have been greatly discouraged as of late. Maybe our, our, our praying has even dwindled to just a, barely a flicker. Father, my prayer is that even through this servant of yours, Daniel, that we would be reminded of not only the fact that we must pray, but Lord, the privilege that we have to pray. Father, would you help us to cling to you in the good times and in the bad, knowing that we await the fulfillment of your ultimate promises to bring us to a land where we will dwell forever. Oh God, would you strengthen us and would you help us to walk in hope? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.